folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And happy 4th of July to everybody. I used to say Happy Independence Day, but really um, that's not the case for all people uh, in the world and, and even in this country. So I uh, hope you're enjoying your day. And uh, what an honor it is to bring in a cat who probably knows and uh, has realized from a very early age the magic of spiritual music and allowing the music or rather allow uh, following the music following the muse and you know not necessarily just reading the notes that are on the paper but being able to leave the head of the tune and take as a collective unit take things into um, the stratosphere so that people enter the spirit mind and leave the thinking mind and that's one of the issues that we're having in our society today is that technology has so far exceeded humanity that uh, everything has become a formula trip Uh, everything has become exact and perfect everything needs to be sterilized and basically what that does is it keeps people in a logical mind But you don't realize that in the music of what we call jazz or improvisational music, uh, the place where expanded consciousness can occur is when you enter the spirit mind. And no matter what kind of music I'm going to seed today in my life, I don't care if it's, you know, rock or jazz or funk or whatever it is, it's my job as a member of the audience to make sure that the musicians know that they need to get to the spirit mind as soon as possible. So that I can have descarga and burn through all the shrouded karma that exists in my life and walk out of there with more contemplation, more love, and more consciousness. Joe Lovano, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake. Thank you, man. Beautiful. Oh, man. It's so good. <laughs> to, yeah. Beautiful uh, introduction and talking about uh, pure improvisation and. The study to develop ideas uh, within the world of music, you know, your personal history creates who you are mm. and uh, as an artist, you know, and uh, I feel so fortunate to have developed through the years playing with some of the masters that uh, that taught me those unspoken things just by the spirit of the music, you know, to play notes nobody wrote and to Put them together in your own uh, flowing manner. <laughs> it's such an honor to talk to you, man. No, I mean, I'm 43, and I was a late bloomer when it came to music. And uh, But, man, I mean, Joe, I, I, well, first, I just want to get this out of the way. I want to play I want to play, I wanna play the, this um, audio clip for you, and then, uh, and then come back, and, and we'll break it down, okay? Okay. By 19, by the time I I, I came came out of the GLSD period and I figured out what I had to do, uh, which was basically start yoga and meditating and just change my life around, which I did. And so I started that about a year before I came to to New York. and by the time I got to New York, New York is New York is a very intense city, um, uh, and so I kind of like doubled down on my on my yoga. I started to go to see a lot of different 
spiritual masters, uh, you know, basically, once you open the Pandora's box of, of, of trying to figure out who you are, self-knowledge, whatever you want to call it, enlightenment, it's very hard box to close. And I, did, I didn't want to. <clears throat> in, the, in the end, uh, after doing yoga, which I continued for many years, uh, yoga of, of, of Master Vishnu Devananda, um, and I, I would go to the Sufis. The Sufis, for those who don't know, uh, is the more mystical side of Islam. It's a very, very beautiful side of Islam. Unfortunately, we don't hear much about it. We only hear about the, the bad side of, of Islam, but there are bad people everywhere. Right. That's right. That's right. Um, <clears throat> and I used to run into Paul Motion there, who's a drummer with Bill Evans. Oh, my God. Okay, Mr. Lovano, I just want to know, were you ever, uh, like, how did you connect with Paul Motion? Because that was John McLaughlin. I and, thought that was John McLaughlin. And when he first came to the to the New York, he's searching for, like, some spirit community to feel connected to because of the intensity. And he goes to the Sufi, the Sufi gathering, and there's Paul Motion. I'm like, you know, Lovano, did Lovano become a Sufi at some point? I just, that's what I wanted to get out of the way, you know? Uh, you know, Paul was, uh, Paul came up in that certain crowd of uh, very spiritual players, with Charlie Hayden and Keith Jarrett and Dewey Redmond and uh, this this Bill Evans, of course, and, and Gary Peacock and Paul Blay. And I'm, I think when that period when John McLaughlin was speaking was probably in the 60s, late 50s. Yeah, 69, 69, basically. Yeah, 69. And uh, Paul was doing many things with all those folks, you know. And uh, he was part of that, that kind of musical um, period through the 60s with John Coltrane and Albert Eiler, Paul played with Albert. and uh, You know, for me, I mean, growing up listening to Paul on records, before I ever met him, uh, I was drawn into to that whole uh, idea of creating music within the music. You know, uh, from his earliest stuff with Bill Evans, basically. <clears throat> but then I heard the Keith Jarrett Quartet in 1970 one and two with Charlie and, and Dewey and Paul. And uh, I, w I was going to Berkeley College of Music at the time, just out of high school. And that was the direction and uh, the music that totally captured me. Hmm. I started playing with Paul 10 years later in 1981. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, it was a real development about... Uh, trying to to improvise in a manner that was uh like vibrating on tonalities and not just playing as a technique as an exercise to play and getting into that crowd that's what that was all about all those players they they played with a beautiful technique but it wasn't an exercise to play it was a, a was an idea about mm. creating uh, about creating ideas together in a unit you know <clears throat> and uh 
1981, Bill Frizzell and I both started to play with Paul. And then we played with Paul till his passing in 2011. So for 30 years, Bill and I were a part of, uh, of, of Paul's music and uh, recorded, you know, a lot with him through the years. And, but just toured Europe and uh, the world constantly that whole time, you know. Uh, I mean, it's just so, I, like, uh, John. Fox, you, yeah. It's because just on July 1st was the first night I played for an audience since the pandemic and everything. And we played a concert, a tribute to Paul, because hmm. like, this is the 10th anniversary of his passing this year. And Michael Kelly, a filmmaker, did a film on Paul, and, and that's going to be released soon. It's called Motion in Motion. And uh, the concert on, on July 1st at the Falcon Arts Center up here near where I live in Marlboro, New York, <clears throat> which is about an hour and a half, two hours from Manhattan, up the Hudson. You know? But anyway, uh, Bill Frizzell and I played with Thomas Morgan, on bass and uh, Larry Grenadier on bass. Wow. Steve Cardamanis on guitar and Tony Malaby on tenor and Marilyn Crispell on piano, also Angie Sanchez on piano, and uh, Francisco Mela played drums throughout the evening, uh, who's an amazing, beautiful musician on drums, you know. And uh, we played Paul's... Uh, Compositions in different different combinations. Bill and I played some duets and some quartet with Mela and Thomas, and it was a beautiful evening of uh, exploring some of Paul's tunes. And uh, <laughs> it's funny you brought this up just now, man, because it's, it's looming large for us. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I mean, I'm not a Sufi, but I really relate to that mystical side of Islam, and I mean. It's so surreal to me that well, when you when you improvise and you go into channeling, yeah. and uh, you go into like a certain kind of a trance, and you you do try to uh, uh, not think and and let the music take you and uh, sustain a mood, you know, and you know play, my years playing with McCoy Tyner. Uh, taught me a lot about that too, you know, about uh, creating a, a, a feeling and sustaining it, you know. And playing with Paul also was always like that, and uh, with Charlie Hayden and uh, certain musicians that uh, I've had a chance to play with in my lifetime, you know. I feel so blessed to have played a lot with Elvin Jones and Hank Jones also, you know, uh, different kinds of music, but it all had the same kind of uh, channeling flow. When you saw, I mean, I realized you grew up in Cleveland, but I mean, what was, what separated um, the, the Jarrett group? You talk about tonalities, I mean, but was it just... Um, I mean, you go back to something like uh, Miles' group in the mid '60s, uh, the plug nickel sessions, where they sort of left huh? the, left the heads of the tunes, and you know, sort of you know, every tune you never played the same song the same way once. Uh, what was 
Keith's group doing that was revelatory to you um, in terms of... Well, they were completely creating music within the music. You know, you have structures, you have little sequences of changes and harmonies, and uh, there might be a certain tempo that something might... Uh, something somebody plays might suggest and you know uh, you know to listen to records is is one thing but when you're in a room with the music it affects you in another kind of way too you know i was never in a room with the miles davis band that you're speaking on you know with uh with wayne and tony williams ron carter and herbie but now through the years i've played the only one i never played with was tony williams but I've played with Ron Carter. I've played with Wayne and Herbie. And um, it's it's something when you're sharing the space with someone and not just playing at the same time, but trying to create some music together, you know. And uh, all of the all of that is uh, is a spiritual thing. Like the John Coltrane Quartet, uh, we could listen to those records over and over again and we're captured completely. But, uh, I mean, I was never in the room with that quartet. That would have been a whole other thing for me in my development. Right. But I played a lot with McCoy and a lot with Elvin, you know. And, uh, that, uh, that teaches you a lot of, of things about that Sufism, about uh, the spiritual side of things. You, do you believe that... Uh... Well, let me ask you a question. I remember talking to a great session player uh, from Cleveland, Craig Durge. He used to go to the place called the Club 100. Did you ever go there? No, my dad used to play there, though. I want that, that was yeah, was that, more in the fifties and and into the end of the sixties, but forties and fifties, really. I just want I want to know where. Lead, yeah, I know. I want leading. you to talk about your dad because your dad to me like. Um, I, I was going well, back to my interview with Tommy LaPuma last night, and he was huh. talking about Nick DeCaro and, and how he got him out to Los Angeles. And I'm like, Joe's a little too young. Like, when did you first – were you when <laughs> were you first La- on the bandstand, you know? Tommy LaPuma and my dad were, were friends, and Tommy was a barber. My dad was a barber, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Tommy was a tenor saxophone player, and there's pictures of my dad and him playing at oh jam sessions. Oh, God, that's great. That's <laughs> so great. My dad was born in 1925, and I'm not sure when Tommy was born. He might have been 10 years younger than my dad or something. Right. Earlier 30s, you know. But my dad was one of the leading players around town in his time, you know, in his day. And uh, he heard Charlie Parker live. He heard, uh, you know, Lester Young and played in jam sessions with Gene Ammons and uh, a jam session once with Coltrane when Coltrane was on alto in the early 50s. Came to Cleveland with a blues band. But there were famous clubs and places where there were uh, jam sessions all the time where everybody would go after the gig, you know. And uh, my dad was really a part of that scene and had a lot of stories and a great record collection that I grew up with, you know. And uh, he, my dad heard the Coltrane Quartet uh, when they came to Cleveland in the, in the 60s, you know. And uh, Coy Tyner talked a lot about playing in Cleveland. It was a club called the Jazz Temple that uh, there was a bomb 
know, during the during the racial uprising sure. thing, a lot of uh, turmoil going on, you know. But my dad heard Coltrane's quartet at the Jazz Temple before that incident, you know. And uh, then when things things changed in '65 and '6, uh, a lot of those clubs were gone, you know, all the famous clubs that were in, in Cleveland. And Detroit and Pittsburgh and <laughs> Chicago, a lot of places took a big, big turn as far as the the lo- not only the local scene, but like the you know a lot of the the national groups that would travel, they would be coming through uh, those those cities, you know, and staying for weeks at a time, you know. So I heard I heard firsthand from my dad about. Him here in Thelonious Monk and people that would come through, you know. <laughs> so I was born in '52. Uh, so, mm. you know, I grew up. I was 14 or so when Coltrane passed, but my dad had an amazing record collection and uh, all of the different periods of Coltrane into like Meditations and uh, Kulu Say Mama. A few of those recordings my dad had. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't bring those into into his collection. <laughs> he already had those. I mean, like, like what was the... his collection became my collection as I was. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, but like, is at best. I know you weren't there, but uh, the Jazz Temple, like, uh, first of all, I, I didn't the really the serious race riots happen after Dr. King was assassinated in like sixty seven, sixty eight. I thought sixty five. 66 yeah. was still like like the jazz 65 cats, is yeah. when my dad heard coltrane wow i mean yeah. it the vibe must have been i don't know you you were you're so blessed man because you caught this magical period of um things were changing a lot but i i just remember like i just was wondering if you could talk also albert yeah. isler was from cleveland right <sighs> and that whole school of players there was a piano player, Bobby Few, who just passed this last year. Mm. Uh, and Frank Wright, another tenor player, they went to Paris. Uh, Bobby went to Paris at some point then in, in the 60s and became, uh, he played with Steve Lacey for like 20 years or so. But there was, there was other players that, uh, that I knew about and then eventually played with and met during my travels with Paul and uh, other groups that I've toured Europe with, you know. And uh, it was always a Cleveland connection somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, dude, Here. I mean it it was so it felt great. I mean, can you talk about the first experience playing the one thing that was still kind of happening a little bit was the uh the organ trios. Did you ever play with it on the Chitlin circuit at all in the Midwest? I know there were supper clubs with Don Patterson and and Billy. Those were my those were my first gigs. Can you talk like, about that? I mean, that that stuff was sanctified, man. That was well, like yeah, it was because it was coming from the church, exactly. also like the real church feeling in that music. And in the sixties, uh, like all the groups my dad had. Uh, after a certain point, we're with organ groups, organs, because a lot of the clubs didn't have nice pianos. But you could pull up to the front of a, any corner tavern with a B3 <laughs> and a Leslie speaker and walk in and turn 
any any like bar into a club, into a jazz club. I love it. And Lou Donaldson uh, was a pioneer in that. You know, Lou would go on the road. He's we've spoke about this a lot. He talks about Cleveland. Like I love Lou, man. Jesus. Yeah, he's he's something else, man. We're so under, blessed. Oh my god. He's still with us. I know, know, man. I interviewed. He's these guys are insanely. The music keeps him alive. But you know, you're telling me that he was the one that would he'd rent a. He was one of the early cats that would go on the road, and with a trailer and bring the organ. And uh, let's say he went to Pittsburgh and he played for two or three weeks in in a club. While he was there, he was calling another club in Columbus or uh, in Cleveland or somewhere else. You know. And booking gigs while he was on the road, <laughs> he'd be playing somewhere, not sure where they were going to go. But he knew people everywhere, and we called Indianapolis and booked something. You know, he was out there like that. And Dr. Lonnie Smith uh, was in his band. You know, Lonnie's on Alligator Boogaloo and those things. Absolutely. You know? So along with Dries Mohammed, who yeah. I played a lot with. But anyway, so Lonnie, they came to Cleveland. There was a club called the Smiling Dog Saloon from 1970 to 75, something like that. So I was in a lot of the house bands there. After coming home from Berkeley, there was gigs around Cleveland. So I was coming back home and, and playing with Bill DiRango, an amazing guitarist who was a, a total pioneer in more free jazz. Whoa, and, dude, is that cat still with us? Who is that? I never heard of that cat. Well, Bill, Bill D'Arango, you could find him on some... Uh, he was in Ben Webster's band oh. and also played with Bird and Dizzy on uh, some of the first early recordings. Are you kidding? Uh, he I was in not. New York during the 52nd Street period sure. and was playing with Don Bias. And, uh, yeah, so we're talking 1944, 43, those years, you know. And when 52nd Street kind of disappeared the way it, it was in its heyday he went back to cleveland had a music store and just uh was a mentor and guru to everybody you know and uh i recorded some with him and um played a lot with bill he was uh he was someone that had play, was a single note player he didn't uh, play chords i dig it man. And, so much man yeah and di- he didn't really like play voicings and comp for you he would play uh, counterpuntal lines oh. and, uh, melodically, you know. And uh, there's some famous. There's a famous picture with him playing with Ben Webster, where Charlie Parker came to New York and sat in with them. And Bird's in the picture. He's <laughs> real young. You could find this in some uh, jazz history books, you know. The go- what was what made him a guru to you? I mean, I lo- these guys could say two because words. He would, yeah. He would go into a trance. You're speaking on this certain way of playing and Sufism, and uh, I'm sure John McLaughlin was hip to Bill. Oh, yeah. Definitely. You know, because John developed a certain technique and a way of flowing like that that Bill was uh, exploring and and just had the, the facility on the guitar to get around like that, you know, and play tempos, uh, you know, uh, but anyway, that period at the Smiling Dog created a lot of different gigs for a lot of people, you know, us as local cats, you know. Like Lonnie Smith came through there with, with uh, Lou Donaldson, and he was looking 
started his own band and uh, was looking for a saxophone player. And I wasn't there at the time, but someone gave him my name and number. I was back in Boston. I get a call from uh, my mom saying this uh, <laughs> doctor, or he, he wasn't going by Dr. Lonnie Smith then. It right. was just Lonnie Smith. This was 1974. And uh, I was like, you know, 20, 20 years old, 21 or whatever. And uh, he he uh, told me he was hearing about me and would I like to fly to Detroit and come and play with him. So I did. And then I that was my first time really coming to New York then and recording my first session. Uh, and it was under Lonnie's name called Aphrodisia. And it had uh, George Benson on guitar and. Ben Riley played drums. Another drummer, Jamie Haddad, who is a close friend of mine from Cleveland, who, who uh, the last 20 years has been playing percussion and things with Paul Simon. Folks. Totally. It was Ron Carter on bass or something? I, I can't remember who was on bass for that. Or there, maybe there wasn't a bass player. No, there was some with no bass, but yeah, Ralph Armstrong played on a few tracks and so did ron carter on electric bass right no i mean because we let it i don't know if you caught that tune it was i can't stop listening to this it's uh, the, the next lonnie smith album keep on loving and ah. and this tune filet of filet soul and ah. it's like dude you're it's like the most beautiful lilting r&b but i just you know when you first started to gig with Lonnie, for instance, I just want you to talk to younger cats today because so many of my peers and younger friends that the music has gotten fundamentally so loud because of, um, you know, super high end uh, PA system or, or just, you know, surround sound systems, not a lot of dynamics. There were sometimes, right. well, I, mean, yeah, I mean, I just want to say, know, like, when, where did your ears, did you think your ears grew the most in, on the band? Well, I had to. Yeah. I had to develop a sound to play along with a with an organ with no mic. Right. And you develop a projection and you you know you the 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 way those cats all played was so musical. There was a dynamics in the way they played. Oh. Lonnie could play like triple forte if he if he felt it, but he, he would he would live in a mezzo forte place and then be go softer and then rise up, you know. So when you grow up playing with uh, with musicians that play with uh, more character in their playing, you know that's what create what what is sound? Sound is your approach about how you're playing, and uh, playing with some of those cats was was beautiful, man, because you really had to you you played with dynamics yourself as a horn player. There were never any monitors or anything on any of the gigs we played. There would be a PA system. I would play into a mic also sometimes, but it was for the room, you know. And uh, shortly after I played with Lonnie, Jack McDuff came to Cleveland, and he played the Smiling Dog, and I, I was playing opposite him with a with a quartet. And uh, he was, uh, McDuff, he was traveling with two tenor players, but he, he had like a saxophone section type, book with a uh, alto two tenors and baritone wow so in each town he would go he would uh hire an alto player and a baritone player in in each town so that week i i got called you know asked if i would play the baritone book 
I had a baritone. You know, I had never really played a gig on baritone, but I had a baritone, and I would practice. You know, I, I was playing the horn. So I said, oh, yeah, okay. So I played the week on baritone, and this alto player, a friend of my dad's named Willie Face Smith, who ended up writing my uh, orchestrations for my 52nd Street release on Blue Note Records with my nonette that won a Grammy. Uh, Face was uh, played alto. He played beautiful, man. He had a sound like coming from Bird, but uh, he didn't get around his horn like that so much, but he had that kind of tone, mm. beautiful, majestic alto sound. You know, He was known for, he when Thelonious would come to Cleveland, Face would play alto in his groups he'd put together with local cats. Anyway, Face and I played a gig. And we have a lot of fun that week. Joe Dukes was playing drums, and uh, this great tenor player, David Young from Indianapolis, played with George Russell in the early '60s. And, uh, Joe Dukes. Friendly. Joe Dukes showed up for the gig because Lonnie told me he had to fire him a few times. I mean that. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, the Dixie Bomber was a very elusive <laughs> character. <laughs> Dude, those guys. I mean, Booker T. Jones told me that when. He went when he went down to Fourth and Beale to see McDuff. His his pant legs were just whipping in the wind from Dukes and and uh, McDuff. Man, I mean that. Oh yeah, that well they were a real team, man. And and the Dixie Bomber played with us on some famous recordings with with Jack with uh, Red Holloway on saxophone and different cats through the years. But in 1975, he was there still with McDuff and played amazing. Man, he had such a beautiful beat. But he was like a, a elusive character too. He could disappear and all of a sudden run into the room and make a grand entrance. You know, he he was a real theatrical cat also, oh. but played so beautiful, man. And uh, but but David Young was a master saxophone player from Indianapolis that was friendly with uh, Dolphy and Coltrane and everyone in the early '60s. And uh, so so touring with them was amazing, man. Bill Cody was the other tenor player, also played in Frank Foster's Loud Minority. Oh, Big my band. God, I love this stuff. You know, I want to just... Cody, yeah, go ahead. Cody spoke in rhymes. <laughs> Talk to him, he rhymed everything he said, you know. Hey, he was oh, from this Jersey. Is this is so great, man. Jesus. We were on uh, the tour, the, you know, you mentioned the Chitlin Circuit, which is a series of clubs um, throughout the Midwest, you know. And uh, I went on the road with Macduff. When Aphrodisia came out with Lonnie, I was on the road with Macduff also. I was sharing both gigs. Wow. Uh, and uh, we were doing these Oregon Summit gigs with Macduff, where, you know, there was probably in the six months or so that, that I was in the band that we toured with a saxophone section. We did a handful of Oregon Summit gigs with Jimmy Smith's trio, Shirley Scott trio, which was Harold Vick on tenor. Oh, and, uh, I love this. Yeah, Eddie Gladden on drums. And then uh, Larry Young sure. with his, one of the first early fusion kind of bands. You know, coming coming after Lifetime. Sure. Larry Young, uh, and he wore a turban and was really uh, amazing. That was real exotic kind of sufism type music also absolutely he was playing out he was playing like out uh but it but But it was 
spirit, you know, exactly. it was spirit. You could say it was out. It was out only because it wasn't just popular. Jazz. That's what I mean. You know, That's exactly was, uh, what I mean, dude. Yeah. They were creating something for themselves. <laughs> but anyway, to be on tour, some of those gigs where we all shared an evening, it was amazing, man. I'm like, you know, 22, and I'm on a tour in the middle of uh, this really beautiful uh, spiritual music, you know. And then I moved to New York shortly after that because playing with Macduff and with Lonnie, I was coming to New York a lot, and we would play at the Club Baron and Harlem and different places. So I was getting around New York City and sitting in and meeting a lot of folks. One of the first places I went to sit in and uh, was at Rashid Ali's club called it was Ali's Alley. Ali's Ali's Alley. Alley. Yeah, and it was I've never heard Green of that Street. place. Oh yeah, it was on Green Street uh. in Soho, and it was uh, his his he lived upstairs, and it was like a loft space downstairs with with music, but no liquor or anything. You know, just it was a place to go and be and be in the middle of some really amazing music. And uh, I went and sat in with him and met him for the first time during that period, 1976 or so. And Sam Rivers also had a place called Studio Rivby on Bond Street that I used to go and frequent a lot. And the uh, first time I heard Sam with Dave Holland and Barry Ashel, and that crowd, <laughs> that was another uh, really new music place, you know. And it would be today. It would be the, a new music place. <laughs> Joe, I need to ask. I need. I really need to talk to you. I mean, it, um, Lenny White. That, Lenny White showed he was every. Yeah, no, he. I was in my early twenties, yeah. and I was starting to play with, and to be in a room with some um, some players, man, that were so influential uh, for me even before I went to New York. But all of a sudden, that's everybody was there. It was a community of folks. And that's when I, you know, first met Moo Hall, Richard Abrams, and those cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I joined the Mel Lewis Jazz Orchestra after I played with the Woody Herman Band and Paul Motion, 81. Well, no, what I wanted to ask you was, was Lenny White was 13 years old, and he, his dad would take him to play with Jackie McLean, and uh, he'd get on the bandstand and start playing, and McLean would turn around and say, no backbeat, no backbeat, all right? He hated backbeat. And I wanted you to talk about, you know, you're talking about motion, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dukes, um, and, you know, just this this plethora of uh, Rashid Ali. These guys were not, they, they, a lot of them didn't want backbeat. And I want, and I, I wanted you to talk about, and all I hear today in a lot of music is just pulsating backbeat. And the thing I love the most, I don't care if it's Larry Bunker or it's motion. I mean, they're like, every time I listen to iconic albums, you can listen to them over and over again, and they sound different every time. And it has, right. some, has something to do with the way they're keeping time in non-traditional ways. And I just wanted you to talk about these guys and, and how not pl- easing off of backbeat opens up the opportunity for the rhythm section to play melodically and then creates a, a an environment for spiritual music to occur well you know i mean when you're locked into any kind of routine on any instrument it boxes you in it boxes the music in but you know some music that's what it's called for right but 
to really explore the possibilities and create music within the music, you don't want to be a routine type player. Uh, I could, I'll tell you a story. Like I played a lot with Ed Blackwell. You did. Okay? Starting in '89, I, I recorded two recordings with Blackwell. One on uh, Soul Note, Black Saint, with Anthony Cox on bass. It's called The Sounds of Joy. Wow. wow. And on Enja Records. Yeah. And on my first, uh, at the beginning of my Blue Note period, like 1991 or so, uh, my first real release for Blue Note was with Michelle Petrucciani, Dave Holland, and Ed Blackwell. And uh, Blackwell passed maybe a year later, 92 or so. But but uh, playing with Blackwell was like an amazing, <laughs> that period in the 80s, I was playing with Mel Lewis, Paul Motion, Elvin Jones and Ed Black <laughs> began touring. Dude, you are you are on the moon at this point, man. You're cos you are in a cosmic zone. Man. I love it, man. I was like uh, so blessed, man. So and blessed. I man. feel uh, I feel like uh, it was a springboard to everything for me, you know. But playing with Blackwell was so beautiful, man. I went and told I saw Elvin. I toured with Elvin's band in 1987. Jazz Machine. We did a nine-week Europe tour, and uh, after that, I went to hear him. And uh, I had just been playing with Blackwell, and I went, I went to hear Elvin. I was like really happy to tell him that I was just I've been playing with Ed Blackwell, and we just did this record date. <laughs> and he, Elvin, looked at me. He goes, "He knows what to do." <laughs> <laughs> They were tight. They were friends. Oh man, dude, this is the mo you're you're making my you're making my day, uh, Lavana. I mean, do you do you feel like? Um, but wait, I, I go ahead, please the, go ahead. Yeah, back to the backbeat. Yeah, do it. Okay, so then I did a trio record with Elvin and Dave Holland in '98 uh, called Trio Fascination for Blue Note. Uh, under my name, and I wrote all the music for the session. You know, so the group that I had to tour was with Cameron Brown on bass and Idris Mohammed on drums. And we played for a couple years there, late 90s into 2000s. Uh, and then Idris ended up going, going out with uh, Ahmed Jamal, somewhere around 2002 or so. But anyway, Idris told me stories about Blackwell because it was a New Orleans thing. Yeah, Idris was playing with um, uh, you know, Art Neville down on, there. Yeah, no, definitely. Dries was on Blueberry Hill when he was fourteen. Yeah. Okay. And then, but he's on Roberta Flax, uh, "Killing Me Softly," and all kinds of sessions. You know, Leo Morris was his his uh, his real name and sorts. But Dries, like he was following Blackwell around, and uh, he told Blackwell one day. Blackwell heard him play and dug his touch and his sound and. He asked Blackwell. He said, "Man, I, I want to play jazz. I want to, I want to play more jazz. You know, what do I, what, what do I do?" Blackwell told him. He said, "Well, stop playing the backbeat in your left hand and find something else to do." Wow. Wow. And then Adrice developed a style, man, where he played around the whole drum kit with his left hand, more melodic. You know, he would the way he tuned his drums. And the way he uh, would play ideas on with his left hand 
while he was playing the cymbal beat and the bass drum and hi hat. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, and he developed a whole way of playing, but uh, all his own, you know, and had the embrace of Art Blakey and all and Elvin and everyone through the years, you know. And uh, but you know that that's the thing. It's like. Uh, not to fall into a routine. Sometimes those routines make the, make everything happen. But you have to be an independent kind of a player so you could be, a you know, the way Billy Higgins in, interprets things. Billy Higgins is on so, so many recordings, probably the most of anybody, makes everybody feel so good in the band, you know, as an example. Well, I mean, you know, he, I mean, it, you know essentially... You know, jazz for for was ba- through through the seventies was a was a black subculture, and I'm wondering about if you could just talk. I think it's really pretty interesting. You're I could probably count on my hands the number of cats who have made a living playing the music they've wanted to play, and I think you're one of them. And I think you're amazingly blessed to have done that. And I wonder. Um, no, and all these yeah. all these ways of playing, you have to believe in yourself, and you have to carry yourself in a certain way where you're uh, sharing the space with everybody, and the, then the music brings you places, you know, and it it goes way deeper and way beyond like uh, any kind of racial thing. And well, I'll no. What I was trying, what I what I wanted to ask you is, were were you into, did goes you, into humankind also? You know, it goes into uh, uh, the world of music, which is what jazz really is. Jazz is about the world of music, and that's why uh, someone like Miles or Coltrane and certain certain cats through the years, Cecil Taylor and others, you know, have uh, it, it's a very universal language around the world that uh wherever you're from your deep roots your blood uh comes through in your sound and your idea of what that even means you know and uh it, it, yeah it's uh it's an amazing thing man well that's a great i mean at least it, it's the question uh, a couple questions i mean did you when when did you ever have to take gigs to pay the bills or you have you always been able to play the music that you wanted to play to make a living i mean there julian priester said there's a fine line between being a musician and being an artist you know and 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 being a musician means hey you know what i gotta take this these bar mitzvah gigs or i gotta take this funk gig because it's gonna pay the bills as opposed to cats who are their artistic integrity is so strong that they will continue to find ways to just continually create music no matter how non-mainstream it is and i just wonder how if if, well if if, have you always been have you ever had to just take gigs even in the 70s that you didn't necessarily like but you took them because that because you needed the the dough i i was really fortunate to to be embraced by some of the master leaders masters man yeah and and uh able to secure some gigs for myself but growing up my dad taught me about being as versatile as possible you know so you really develop a repertoire of music you love to play okay and uh that includes famous songs and standard repertoire right uh 
So to play a wedding or to play a bar mitzvah sometimes, in those days, in the, in the, when I was a teenager and into moving to New York, it was, uh, it was always playing famous songs. It was always playing standard tunes and improvising and playing with, with cats who, uh, who knew a lot of music. Like, there was never any music on stage. You would call tunes. I love it. You know what I mean? Oh, but totally. you might be You might be playing a wedding or a commercial-type gig, but you're playing your horn, you know? And uh, to give you an example, you know, I'm in New York, and it, uh, I was in New York only six months, and I got the gig with the Woody Herman Band, 1976. So I went on the road with Woody for two and a half years, uh, where we had a week off in the summer, a week off at Christmas. And that was it. We were on the road the whole time. My first international touring was with Woody. So everywhere we went, whether it's Chicago or St. Louis or different towns, if I, you know, after our gig, or I would go to the local clubs and have my horn and sit in and meet cats, you know. <laughs> Left the band, I knew people in all these different places, and they knew me. So I started to travel as a... a like a soloist, you know, like Sonny Stitt and a lot of cats traveled around the States and played with local rhythm sections for years. Really? In different towns. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I mean, they, they'd, they'd walk in and, 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 and set up a gig for the band themselves, but they'd surround themselves with local cats. Well, they would be higher, like there would be a club, the Jazz Showcase or something in Chicago that would hire Sonny Stitt and he would go to Chicago and he'd play with the local baddest cats in town. Love it for two weeks or whenever, you know. But just to say Sonny Stitt's name, he very rarely toured with his same rhythm section like people do today, you know what I mean? Right. Or like Horace Silver, he would have his band. There were a few cats had bands, Art Blakey, Horace Silver, but a lot of solo players, and myself included, uh, at an early age, you make a reputation and you, you go and you play with the local baddest cats in town that are playing the house band in the different clubs, whether you're in Indianapolis or Cincinnati or L.A., you know. Uh, so I, I got into that thing because I knew about it. So I didn't have to take any kind of the weird commercial gigs that, that were uncomfortable to play. I kind of created something for myself to happen. Uh, but look, here's an example. Did you know who Sal Nestico was? Oh, my God. Uh, Syracuse, right? Unbelievable cat. Great saxophone. Unreal, player. yeah. And he Woody like 10 years before me. Right. He was there in 68 uh, and 6. Uh, I played with Woody in the 70s. Anyway, coming back in New York, and uh, Sal's around New York a little bit in the early 80s. He, li- he mainly lived in Europe. He moved to Bern, Switzerland, and lived in Europe and Italy also. But uh, Sal calls me one day, and he says he had this wedding, and he couldn't make it. It was in the afternoon hmm. on a Sunday. And would I like to make the gig? You know, they had paid a nice little taste. I said, oh, yeah, okay. He gives me the address. I go there, and... Uh, <laughs> It's an outdoor little scene, like this, the, the stage is on the, the driveway, right? right. The driveway is the little dance floor, and then, every, you know, tables are on the grass. 
I go there and it's Jackie Byard on piano, <laughs> Atkinson on bass, huh. and uh, 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 Jolie Lewis sang, right? And uh. Walter Perkins on drum. Oh my gosh, but man. All of a sudden, I'm. Good. I'm there, and I'm like, oh. uh, and they, they, you know, they knew that Sal called somebody to make it, but they didn't really know me. I had never really played with uh, with Jolie Lewis and those cats. Oh, I love you this. Know, they kind of knew who I, I was. I love you know? this, dude. This and, you know, here's a wedding gig. <laughs> so, you know, you don't know what you're going to walk into, man. You know, it turned out to be one of the most memorable little afternoon parties, and we just called tunes and had, had a lot of fun, man swinging like a monster and jackie byard was incredible to play with and he was playing on a fender Rhodes piano also and uh oh my and, god that is so that that is a didn't know oh this is a very important because chicago i mean I, i've interviewed guys like phil upchurch and you know there were you know that there were there really um right at that time even when you came on on the scene i mean blues was still right attached at the hip to jazz i don't hear that as much today in modern jazz i know you know why because a lot of the young players are playing page 37 out of a certain book and they're not they're not playing from their soul mighty joe young i mean did were there some iconic blues cats in cleveland that you used to jam with? i mean because i that everyone hears about the the blue, you know, Otis Rush and all these guys from Chicago. But I'm like, when I hear you're playing, I mean, I hear, I mean, it's just like, there's obviously a lot of train. Now your dad's record collection was very pivotal, but there's like blues in there. It's so bluesy, man. And I'm like, did you? Well, you know, for me, it was coming from Gene Ammons. Yeah. And coming from uh, Illinois Jaquette and those kind of saxophone players that I was hearing and listening to and feeling what they were feeling uh, by listening to them. And then playing with interpretations of some of those same tunes, you kind of channel, you channel a lot of things, you know. So I didn't really play with a lot of blues players, but I was influenced by that, you know. Right. And it gave me a sense of and a, an awareness of how to try to, uh, you know, play with certain cats, and then playing with Lonnie Smith is a total blues player, you know, and Mac Duff. You know, blues is in the heart of the music. And, uh, you know, when people talk about the church, it, it, you know, it's about the congregation and the congregation of musicians playing and the, the, the congregation including the audience you're in front of or that are in front of you. The whole room becomes a congregation of folks. And I always felt that. And I guess because of my dad, he had that kind of thing in his plan, you know. Uh, was he a bop, was he a bebop cat, or did he just, what, was, what kind of music did he, like? Well, his whole, he, you know, the Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie songbook was what taught him everything. Oh, to my play. God. But, but before that, you know, he was, like I said, he was born in 25. Bird, I mean, uh uh, Miles and Coltrane were born in 26, you know, Stan Getz. My dad played opposite Stan Getz. Wow. He played opposite a lot of groups, you know. Sure. Flip, Flip Phillips and different people that would come to Cleveland, you know. It's a place called Lindsay Skybar. It was a real famous club where 
I know that's where he heard Bird with Strings. The early 50s, they came and played there. Like, they came to Cleveland three times and played at Lindsay Sky Bar with the Strings. And uh, my dad always talked about hearing that. <laughs> and then I found a book about Cleveland jazz history. Right. Uh, it mentioned clubs and who played in what years and everything. And I found, after, you know, my dad passed and everything, uh, I found certain club references that tied together stories from my dad. You know, Tad Dameron was from Cleveland. So my dad played with Tad Dameron also. There's, there's, there's newspaper clippings with my dad's name playing quartet gigs with Tad Dameron when he would come home you know, um, from New York, uh, like 1958 and those years, you know. So, you know, like, uh, he wasn't from Cleveland. I think Columbus was uh, Rossan Roland Kirk, too. Rossan was from Columbus, but came and played in Cleveland a lot. Wow. My dad's organ player, was his name was Eddie Backus, who's still with us today. Eddie Backus, dude. Oh, he's still around? Oh, yeah, and uh, I play with him. When I go home to Cleveland and I book some gigs. Uh, dude, first. that dude, man. Holy. Oh, God. yeah. Now, now Eddie, he was, uh, him and his drummer, Cookie, who also was blind, <laughs> they were in Rasan's trio called the Three Blind Mice early on. Oh, my God. In Rasan's oh, career, like traveling and stuff. And they came, and Eddie and Cookie settled in Cleveland. And this is the early 50s. And uh, that my dad, when I first, when I got my driver's license, like, right around 15, 16, I remember going and hearing my dad with Eddie Backus and Cookie playing a trio gig. And, uh, yeah, that's when I first sat in and played with Eddie when I was a kid. Man. Talk about a blues player and a soulful, you know. <laughs> I, you know, the, did you – it's interesting because inter- you're now – Eddie Backus Jr. also is a young saxophone player, lives in D.C., who played in that group Pieces of a Dream. I don't know if you know that. It was more of like a little fusion group, uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago or so, 12 years ago. Uh, Eddie's son, Eddie Backus Jr., is a beautiful young saxophone player. I remember when Mark Levine would, he wasn't even at Berkeley. Uh, this was how loose it was. He would just show up at Jackie Byard's house, who was teaching at that time, and was like, uh, Jackie would play drums, and then Mark would play piano, and uh, he'd say, let's let's play Cherokee in all 12 keys. And then mm-hmm. Levine would fall apart at like D or G or something, and then uh, Jackie's like, great, uh, now you, you know what you need to work on? I'll see you next week. It was like, it was like a 10-minute lesson, you know? And then... Harvey Mason would go, and uh, Alan Dawson was like, you know, man, I can't really teach you anything new, but we can play games. So they'd play vibes and drums, and they'd go, and then, you know, Alan couldn't make a gig with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. He'd let Harvey go. When the Schillinger House first opened, which was before you went there, guys like Charlie Mariano would go either to clean up or start playing new instruments. It was a trade school for already established professional musicians and i want you to talk as candidly as you can about what i consider to be the biggest crisis in 
extending vocabulary of melodic improvisation or jazz is the idea that there's this assembly line going into the academy now where cats are paying, either they're going on scholarship or they're paying lots of money uh, to get a degree with no guarantee of any gigs coming out. And also, I can't really hear any individuality within the sounds. I mean, I can tell Joe Lovano from Lucky Thompson, from Liebman. I mean, it, everybody, the drummers, LaRocca, Roker, T- Tony Williams, Max Roach, you can hear everybody sounded different. We know why. Can you talk about... Um, can the the language of this music that you have been marinating in for the last five decades or so, can it be codified and put into the academy? Well, you know, everybody has to have a purpose of why they're trying to play this music and uh, who they are, uh, where they're from how they listen, who they listen to. The, we, we have this library of recorded music that is incredible today. Yeah. There should be more creative players today than there were before because you could listen and, and hear so many people, you know. Uh, I have the Gary Burton chair in jazz performance at Berkeley College of Music, right, which uh, 9-11 was my first day. Wow. Okay, so this year is, is 20 years. Wow. Now, since 2009, I'm, I'm teaching within the Global Jazz Institute with Danilo Perez, John Patitucci, Terry Lynn Carrington, and we address the same form of students. It's a master's program also, undergrad and master's within Berkeley, and uh, it's been an incredible, beautiful journey about uh, trying to develop who you are as a person and a player and uh, not to copy but to be inspired by people, folks within the library and developing your own compositional um, idea of who you are also. Not just to not just to learn what other people played and play other play music that other people play but try to create your own music within this world, the music we live in. And that's been really rewarding. And uh, throughout this whole pandemic period, uh, where folks couldn't play in the same room together, like the remote recording and the, the ideas about social things that, have, that we all live through, how, how that could come into your music today, uh, with this defining moment, you know, socially and with the pandemic and all these things that are going on, mm-hmm. that have always been going on, That's right. actually. That's right. You're right. <laughs> but make your, to make who you are as a player have a, more of a purpose than just an exercise to play your horn like someone else played their horn, you know. Uh, there's a lot of clones that uh, that play, the purpose is to get a certain kind of a gig, let's say. You know, but there's uh, other purposes about trying to play with more of a humanitarian uh, uh, idea of bringing people together on the planet and to uh, create music that enlightens, you know. Uh, 
I mean, and that's yeah. and that's something that's. I mean, how? I think you said you can't it, really answer that question. No, you can't. Really. But no, you. I want to ask you something. This is interesting, and you know, I'm not sure if you thought about this, but you said there should be more creative players today because the library is so deep. But how much of an influence is the the? Vi- oh, there's trumpet players today that never really listen to Dizzy Gillespie because he he terrifies them. This is. My, I want to ask you this question. This is an important question. The the the. The reality the reach, is, you were auto, you, you guys were autodidacts, and now cats are saturated with visual material. On you, it's we're a visual society now, uh, Joe. And I wonder, you know, there's there's a reason why there's a homogenization of sound, and I think it's because you cats were your ears were huge, and a lot of people like Gary Bartz told me cats' ears are locked today because they're learning to read before they can hear the music. You guys could just call tunes because you had a huge bag of tunes because you could hear it. Now you're visualizing it, and maybe you're not really listening. Well, you know, that's one thing I speak about uh, with with young folks, is to not play things the way it looks. Right. To try to play it with some kind of feeling. You could play those notes in that sequence, but now do something with those notes. That's a challenge for everybody, man. And a lot of people don't even know what I'm talking about when I speak. Like they don't that. even so know what you're I, talking about. They don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, you have to do it for them. You have to. You have to give an example. I'll I'll play through sequences of notes, and each time through is a different melody. I love it. I love with it. the rhythm of it, because it's all about the rhythm, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Sequence of tonalities. Uh, is these intervals and these sounds, but like the rhythmic approach that you have to develop to actually make those notes mean something in a flow, that's another thing, you know? And uh, that study is uh, something important, man, about trying to say something with the music, you know? That's why Charlie Parker was so incredible, man. He could play the same sequence of notes and every time it'd be a different feeling and a different statement about those that sequence, you know. And uh, yeah, you learn from from cats who inspire you to to try to figure out what that is, you know. Because <clears throat> it's a journey, man. Like Wayne Shorter, man. He's he plays. He's like a young kid when he plays. So innocent. And the sequence of notes is one thing, but how he plays them every time is. <laughs> Is uh, magic, you know. I have uh, I have one more voice for you, Joe, and then uh, we'll come back. Oh yeah, okay. The Holy Spirit is there all the time, but there's a little phrase I use: the chosen of God are the people who choose God. Hmm. You're not chosen by some spirit on the outside that says, you know, lo and behold, you're the one, mm. or you're the one of you're one of the four hundred and forty-four thousand that have been chosen. Mm. The ones who choose, the ones who say, Holy Father, I believe, I know you're there, I feel your spirit. I reach out to you. When you reach out, the Spirit reaches back. 
I tell people God is waiting. God's always been there. God's not going anywhere. But God is waiting. And when you open the door, the angels sing. Mr. Lamont, you want to take a guess at who that is? Uh, that was my friend, Ernie Watts. Dude, Brother Lavano, man, you are on fire, man. You nailed that. That was my third interview with Ernie, and obviously, I mean, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, I, uh, he's a, Ernie's a beautiful spirit, man, and he, and he gives and gives and gives. And he he was just saying some things that he believes in, and that, and he lives like that, you know. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've known Ernie for some years, but... Uh, Recently, during this period, we've been in touch, and huh. you know, we've uh, he sent me some recordings, recent things he did. I sent him some of my recent releases, and uh, we've been in touch. You know, and uh, as soon as you put that out, I was like, oh wow, yeah. I mean, I, I and, feel, he, yeah, I just, I mean, f- he speaks the truth, man, and that's how he plays. Ernie is an incredible musician, man. When you listen to Ernie play and explore the music the way he does, it's like a lesson. You know, it's a study. Ernie Ernie plays with that kind of uh, incredible driving force, you know, that Mike Brecker played with and, and other cats played with also, you know. But, but Ernie's a very serious uh, musician, man, and uh, he's had an amazing career playing all kinds of music. I uh, just wonder about the... If you could I used to sub yeah. with Charlie Hayden and the Liberation. Uh, not the, well, we played together with the Liberation Orchestra, and there's one recording live at the Montreal, uh, Montreal Jazz Festival where we he was uh, subbing for Dewey, actually. Dewey didn't make that gig, and uh, Ernie played. He was also there with Quartet West, and we played together. That might have been the first time we really played together. But uh, then I used to sub for him with Quartet West on occasion, uh, some dates that he couldn't make with Charlie, and that was always uh, uh, such a beautiful call to get to play with Charlie and uh, Lawrence Marable. And, uh, oh my God! Different drummers played, but uh, Billy Hart and and uh, Alan Broadbent on piano. My my hero. I mean, did, do you? I was going to ask you if you if you could point back to a time in your career or, or life when you, um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously you were steeped in the music. Your dad. I mean, you had a very interesting and unique upbringing. You had all kinds of music filtering through the house, and your dad was an accomplished player. But I just wonder about uh, if you could talk about your connection to to source, you know, and then ultimately how you learn to surrender to that and if you feel like music has saved your life. Well, it it, uh, it definitely has brought me into some of the most joyous, incredible moments in my life, you know. Mm-hmm. And er- early on, realizing through my dad's um, relationships and people that he played with, I realized early on about this total multi-generational experience jazz is and multicultural experience. And uh, having uh, players that 
played with my dad, uh, having their embrace was my whole springboard into uh, developing a way of playing and uh, feeling humble about it, you know, feeling like you're always studying and you're always developing into the next moment of now, you know. And, uh, yeah, that that stills with me today. Did you... um... I just want to also be clear, outside of the two Lonnie Smith albums, between then, there's an incredible Mel Lewis playing Herbie Hancock that you're on from 1980. But mm. what other recording sessions were you on prior to your connection with, with Motion, if any? Uh, I did two records as a leader for Soul Note, one called Tone, Shapes, and Colors. Uh, 1985, maybe we recorded that. And that was I had uh, Kenny Werner piano, right? Dennis Irwin bass, and Mel Lewis on drums. My second release on Soul Note was uh, called Village Rhythm, which my group was Tom Harrell on trumpet, Kenny on piano again with Mark Johnson bass and Paul Motion on drums, and then. Uh, those were in the in the, those those were all in the eighties though. But prior to playing with Paul in eighty one, was you know really um, recordings with the Woody Herman band. What about Ron. what about Radio Registry? What about like Jingle? I got I'm like was Lovano playing jingles, man. Uh, I got called for a handful of. Uh, I know you were doing stuff in the in the early because I mean I know Woody was on the road a lot, but I'm like. If Lovano yeah, moved late, to New York, he was get, he was playing jingles, man. Well, I, I did a handful of, of I got a handful of calls, like you know that uh, Mike Brecker or Bob Mincer sure. or David, uh, you know certain cats couldn't make. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I didn't do too many too many jingle dates, and was never really a part of that radio registry scene, like. A lot of my friends were that were more brass players and played Broadway. I never did Broadway and all that stuff. But I, I developed myself to play flute and clarinet and doubles so I could uh, play within some ensembles. Like with the Mel Lewis band, you know, there was a lot of beautiful clarinet parts in my book. Absolutely. And, and flute parts. I had the chair that Joe Farrell had in... Uh, the beginning of the Thad Jones Mel Lewis band. All my charts had Joe written on them. That's you know that's how I wanted to end set one with you uh, because the cat I never met him I I mean but he was in some ways I mean in the way Stitt was compared to Bird or you know Jimmy Heath was called Little Bird and you know Joe Farrell was sort of when Train died they sort of whatever journalists people like myself. If I, I don't know. They sort of p- passed the torch to Joe. He was playing with Elvin and Jimmy Garrison. And can you right. talk about Joe, man? I mean, Joe at a certain point was channeling the cosmos. I mean, just the way you you have. But he, he was before you. Can you talk about his influence on you? Because he's always been. He's one of the, him and Eric Kloss were the first two cats that that got me into what I thought spiritual music was, and it's turned out to be true. Well, you know, Joe Farrell was a big influence on me, like from from the Thad Jones Mel Lewis band and from playing with Elvin. Right. You know, 
Jimmy Garrison, and I had those records. And uh, I heard the Thad Jones Mel Lewis band in 1970. They came to Cleveland, played at Severance Hall, and the saxophone section was uh, that section with Joe Farrell and Je- uh, Jerome Richardson, Jerry Dodgen, oh. Eddie Daniels, and Pepper Adams. And man, I went to that concert and heard that band live. But I had, you know been hip to it on record because the radio stations were playing the heck out of that uh, in Cleveland. There was a 24-hour jazz station that played a lot of that in Mel. Anyway, you know, it was like, oh, wow, how, could, how do I get myself together to play in that band? <laughs> Still in high school. This is before I went to Berkeley. You're right? trying to scheme it. I love it, man. You know, and, man, I projected. I joined a band 10 years later, 1980. Wow. No, uh, Joe Farrell was a, a serious influence just about the way he played flute also, you know, because when I was a teenager and heard Rasan and then James Moody, the way they played flute, and I was in the room with them. I'm like 16. When I, after I get my driver's license, I'm going to matinees and going to clubs where my dad would all, he'd be playing in those same clubs on alternate weeks. But like... You know, the, when the star week came, uh, James Moody would come to town. And I went to hear Moody, man. I went and got a flute the next week. Right. Started to study flute with one of my dad's uh, buddies that played more doubles, you know. And uh, so then Joe Farrell, his flute playing, the way he played piccolo, and the way he, he explored uh, improvising in such a free-flowing manner was totally influential and uh then joining mel's band when thad moved to copenhagen 1980 bob brookmeyer was back on the scene in new york helping mel kind of uh, reorganize and add new material to the famous book and uh, the tours that i did at the very beginning with with mel's band brookmeyer was leading out front you know and uh, that was that was beautiful. Yeah, you're playing like, on, you're playing on Eye of the Hurricane. It's just like it's well, that that yeah, those moments. That was some of the first. There was a tour before that. That was the second tour to Europe. But uh, so you did one seventy nine too, right? Yeah, and uh, but you know, playing with Elvin and talking about Joe Farrell with him was beautiful because Elvin really loved Joe, and they were tight and. Um, there was another tenor player from Cleveland named Joe Alexander, who also played with Elvin when he first left train, hmm. before the Joe Farrell moments. And Joe Alexander was a, another uh, incredible player, coming from that Johnny Griffin, uh, Gene Ammon school, you know, who played with Woody also in the 60s, uh, during the same period with Sal Nestico. And was real close with my dad. And Joe Alexander was one of the leading forces on the tenor in Cleveland. Really? Yeah, and he passed like uh, 1971 or so, or 1970. But but he played with Elvin a lot. And uh, Elvin spoke about him, and he spoke about Joe Farrell all the time, you know. And that was amazing. But, you know, uh, you you asked a question before about an early recording before yeah. playing with Paul. You know, recording with Woody Herman through the years, during that period, 
you know, when I joined the band was his 40th anniversary year. So 1976, we played at Carnegie Hall, and it was recorded on RCA, and it was with all of the all-stars. It was our band, plus, you know, Jimmy Jufrey, Flip Phillips, uh, Al Cohn, Zoot Sims, Stan Getz, the Condoli Brothers, Jake Hanna. Oh, my. This is ridiculous, man. Lamond on drums also. You know, Don Lamond? Don Lamond? Don Lamond. Oh, my God, dude. This is Brothers and all. And, you know, we played all the parts and all these other stars played all the solos, except we did do our own set, too, where I was featuring on a few things, right? But uh, I played at the microphone playing my part with Stan Getz playing lead on Early Autumn. And that was uh, that was an amazing moment for me. To not just play my notes, but to play my part to make him feel good playing his part, his lead, you know. And I had grown up playing saxophone with my dad and other saxophone players, so I had an idea of how how to blend and how to do that. You know, I was 23 at the time, man, and it was uh, another serious moment of now that it was a springboard. You know, having the embrace of Stan Getz and Zoot Sims and Al Cohn and those cats, man, Flip Phillips, who called me for a record date. To, I played on one of Flip's records when he turned 85 then. Uh, James Carter and I were both guests. Wow. What was the name of that? It was on Verve, and it was called... Uh, Swing is the thing. Flip Phillips. Kenny Washington played drums. And uh, <laughs> that was amazing. I think Cyrus Chestnut might have been on piano. The beautiful rhythm section. Christian, I think Christian McBride was on bass on that date. And uh, yeah, Flip Phillips was an amazing player, man. And was one of the first real. Uh, real saxophone player that stood toe-to-toe with Ben Webster and Lester Young and all the jazz at the Philharmonic. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. I'm not, I'm not so hip to him as a precursor. I, oh, know. yeah, he was there with Bird and everybody in jazz at the Philharmonic. Because he played with Woody in the 40s, Flip Phillips. Joe, I just, before I let you go, did you, can you just... It, We've told, you you've dropped so many shaman shaman names, and I I know that word gets overused, but you've played with a lot of shamanistic healers. And if there's one, could you just what would they say about this time we're living through? You you you've been around a lot longer than me, but I feel the difference now is that. You know, people talk about our country being divided. It's it's more than that. It's it's people look at the other side as the enemy, and we really are all we're one human race. And I just wonder what those shaman cats, the Blackwells, the Elvins, the you know, in the in their most serious moments, the motions, what they would say about how to overcome this insanity because it's different than Watergate. It's different than Vietnam. I just, I know that those times were effed up, but I just, this is a little bit more diabolical. And I just, I wonder what you think those guys would say to give hope to younger musicians or people about the way forward. Well, you know, I, you know, just 
thinking on your question is like uh, I would look to Hank Jones, man. Yeah. Okay. Someone that had so much beauty and wisdom and uh, grace uh, about embracing all things throughout his lifetime, right? Yeah. Uh, Hank was born 1918. So when I played with him, I played his 90th. Birthday celebrations in New York and Hollywood Bowl and such, and Hank lived through all kinds of all these periods, man. And he was so graceful and so accepting and so universally uh, beautiful about life and uh, creating within. Uh, I would look. I would look to him for for uh, guidance through this period for myself. You know, personal experience. Being with uh, someone like him, so you know, divine, a, divine radiance and grace, uh, great rise above, and gratitude, you know, and always searching to to, to uh, make more of a, a poetic statement about who you are and in your music, but as a as a human kind, you know. Joe, man, yeah, he I, was inspiring like that, and that's why. The music we played together for me was uh, some of the, some of my shining hours on the on the on the scene, you know, in having relationships with a master like Hank. Brother Lovano, it was such an honor, man. I hope we get a chance to do it again real soon. I'd love to, and I also would love if you if you have any. I'd love to connect with Eddie Backus too. Ah. That would be cool. Yeah, All right. Yeah. No, let me know. I'll, I'll text you, but man, I'll get you a copy of this later. I just want to say thank you for your years of service to humanity, and uh, and I look forward to seeing you on the bandstand uh, sooner than later. I, I don't know if you, maybe you, you ever, did you ever play with C.G. Munoz? You know, I have. I've sat in with him and played with him. He's his, he's going to play up here at the Falcon. I know. Right? The fa I think you and Tsiji could be healing humanity on, uh, for a week at the Falcon. I need that, man. We played. Uh, I sat in with him. I guess it was probably in 2019, and Bob Moses was rock alarm. Rock alarm, man. Rock alarm was playing drums also. I love it. And uh, yeah, he's a total spiritual. He's my he's no he's my spiritual teacher, man. He he's helped heal me, man. He's an amazing cat. That's beautiful. Yeah, so where where are you located? Where I'm you... a Long Island cat, based in out of Tucson, Arizona, man. Yeah, you're in Tucson, and I'll tell you the right. place to come, the place to go, if you, is the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix. It's an incredible. I've uh, been there, man. I played in there with Chucho. Yeah, I just want to see Lovano as soon as possible, man. Also, I'm supposed to do something at the university out there. Um, Are you kidding me? But you, it's in uh, next spring. U of A or, yeah, or ASU? Uh, at Arizona State. Okay. I was I was booked to do something, and the pandemic canceled that gig. But it's been rebooked, so I'm supposed to come out there and do something. All right, then we'll, then we'll then then let's link up. All right. Yeah. All right. Definitely. Much love, Joe, and uh, happy, happy for happy holiday, and and keep on trucking, man. I'll we'll talk soon. Much love. Yeah, text me, and I'll get you information about uh, Eddie. Much love to you, brother. Okay, you too. Later, yeah, Jake. Bye, man. Thank you. Yeah. What you're doing? All Later. right. Peace. And we'll be back with Robert Walter right after this.